In our uh, congregation, we have a, a tradition, and that is after every Lord's Supper, we sing, it is well with my soul. And if I try to change that song and sing something else, I hear about it. It has become such a, a staple to us. And, you know, it is, uh, it's one of those hymns that keeps your soul afloat in the midst of really hard times. It's one of those hymns that you can recite to yourself. In those words, my sins, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sins, not in part, but the whole, are nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. When you're going through those dark nights of the soul, you're going through those times where, where sorrows like sea billows roll, there's one thing that does not change. And that is that your sins are forgiven through the blood and the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing can change that. And so... I was delighted, one, that we sang it, and two, that they turned off the piano. <laughs> In Nevada, they'd have shot that piano player. I hope that wasn't somebody from the church that was playing that. If it was, um, I would just say, bear with one another, forgiving each other, and whoever has a complaint against anyone forgive just as the Lord forgave. So, well, let's pray together and we will take up the uh, subject of, of everyone is a critic, okay, the sins of grumbling and complaining. Our Father, we do come into your presence tonight. We thank you for the truth that we sang and we thank you that we can declare that it is well with our souls. And Father, we also sang a, really a prayer of dedication. That is, if we thought, think about all of those words that we just sang. Lord, it is so easy to sing things and not take to heart what we're singing. And so we pray tonight that you would be gracious and tender with us, but that you would also have your own way. We pray, Father, that you would sanctify us tonight. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And Father, we pray for any who are here who are without Christ and without hope. We pray, Father, even tonight that you would be pleased to open their eyes and their hearts to behold the beauty and the glory of a Savior who has paid the penalty for our sins. And so, Father, we plead with you tonight that you would be at work. We realize that our own words are nothing. We realize that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we plead with you for the help of your Holy Spirit. And if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so we pray that you'd come with power and do a work in us tonight. In Christ's name, amen. amen.
over the years, I have often given couples the, uh, the book by Paul Tripp, War of Words. And Tripp says at the end of one of the chapters, titles this section, it's a series of questions. Getting to the heart of your talk. Okay? Getting to the heart of your talk. And he says, how can we tell what's really ruling our hearts? Well, ask yourself these questions. And I'm not going to read all of them, but I want to read some of them because they're relevant to our, to our subject tonight. What happens to my talk when circumstances are difficult and unpleasant? What happens to my talk when I see others blessed while I struggle? How much does my talk express a spirit of thankfulness and contentment? Do my words encourage others to put their trust and rest in the Lord? What happens to my talk when others sin against me? Does my speech evidence Gentleness, kindness, and patience. Two more. How often is grumbling and complaining a regular part of my everyday conversation? And is my communication infected with demanding, critical, impatient, accusatory, or condemning words. So tonight, we're going to talk about complaining, or grumbling, or murmuring. There's a lot of Bible words that all mean basically the same thing. And one of the things that you're going to hear tonight a few times is this. It is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so as we think about complaining or, let's say, critical spirit or grumbling, murmuring, why is it that that, that sin can end up being a favorite sin? Why is it, what, or, or we should say, what is it about grumbling and complaining that makes it a pet sin or a darling sin? What is it about that? And I want to just give you just a few possible uh, reasons. One, uh, critical or complaining speech can simply be, you ready? Fun. It actually can be fun to complain about stuff. It can be like a release valve. In fact, we have an expression in our culture for this very thing, and we say, I am just venting, right? I'm just venting. You ever notice we put the word just in front? I'm just venting, as if venting is actually okay, because, of course, everybody does it? Well, I want to say that venting can actually be uh, enjoyable. It can it can feel good. Um, I mean, even even at church, um, we have to be careful, right? Because something happens in Washington D.C. and we can stand around after singing it as well with my soul and just start venting right about the, the the yahoos in washington and we can start venting about how these people are destroying our country and we can start venting and boy there's something that just kind of feels pretty good down in the soul to just let it all come out critical or complaining speech or murmuring or grumbling can be a pet sin simply because it's driven by my pride. Now you might think, you mentioned pride last night, 
And you mentioned pride Thursday night. And now you're telling me, you, I hope that you're getting the point, all right? And that is that pride is often lurking right underneath so many of these sins. And so how is grumbling or complaining, um, in a sense, a manifestation of my pride? Well, because in my pride, I think that my opinion on everything matters. And I think that at the end of the day, you are entitled to know exactly what I think about any situation. Now, I want to say that social media makes this an even more prevalent sin, all right? So, yes, it's always a sin. I always want to make my opinions known, but stop and think about the way that social media becomes a vehicle to manifest my pride by me pontificating to everybody out there who uh, all of my 32 followers who and 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 they are all entitled to my opinion. Here's a dangerous one. It can often be cloaked in a sense of conviction. Grumbling and complaining can often be cloaked with a sense of conviction. Now, Jerry Bridges, in his really it's an excellent book, you should read it, Respectable Sins, he makes this observation. He's talking in this chapter about judgmentalism, which, of course, is, is related. And he says this. He says, the sin of judgmentalism is one of the most subtle of our respectable sins because it is often practiced under the guise of being zealous for what's right. It's obvious that within our conservative evangelical circles, there are myriads of opinions on everything from theology to conduct to lifestyle and politics. Not only are there multiple opinions, but we usually assume our opinion is correct. That's where our trouble with judgmentalism begins. We equate all of our opinions with truth. So, if I can go from preaching to meddling, you go home after church, and instead of having an edifying conversation around the lunch table with family, it is, can you believe the songs we sang this morning? Why in the world would we ever sing anything written before the 18th century? Can you, can you believe they have screens now. I mean, what, what are we going to do next? Pyrotechnic displays as, as our dear pastor comes up to take the pulpit? Or, you know, I, I keep watching Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, and if, if they only knew how to parent their kids... You know it's true, right? You know it's true, right? If only they would parent their kids God's way, which, of course, is my way. Or critical of dress. Can you believe that guy from Nevada didn't even wear a tie? Or critical of differing political opinions. I'm not talking about clear biblical principles regarding the sanctity of life or the sanctity of human sexuality and, 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 and the creation order of man as male and female, but I'm talking about there's all kinds of political things that, that there's legitimate differences among God's people. And yet, 
our conversation may be like, can, can you believe so-and-so voted for so-and-so? Critical of what people drive? Now, I only say this because years ago I bought a, a new pickup and a well-meaning, I assume, well-meaning man in our church says, wow, maybe we're paying you too much. <laughs> I said, shut up and get in your crummy Ford. No. <laughs> it's easy to be critical about stuff and to do it with conviction, right? It's easy under, under this cloak of piety, right? It's easy to be critical because you are representing something higher, something purer, something truer, right? Here's the problem with, with complaining speech or critical speech, and, and it's this, is that it can become completely habitual. It, it can actually become such a part of us that we don't even recognize when we're doing it anymore. In other words, it can become so much a part of our way that as we're engaging in it, it doesn't even show up on the radar. Especially as it relates to other people, I think. And so again, Jerry Bridges, he makes this, this point. He says, most of us can slip into the sin of judgmentalism from time to time, but there are those among us who practice it continually. These people have what I call a critical spirit. They look for and find fault with everyone and everything. Regardless of the topic of conversation, whether it's a person, a church, an event, or anything, they end up speaking in a disparaging manner. I want to say that, that one, of the, one of the blessings of, of me being married to my dear wife, Ariel, is that she's, she's, not, she's not a complainer. And so when I start to complain, I can tell just by the way she looks at me that I should stop. Okay. And okay, honestly, she's far more spiritual than I am. Okay. And, and, I'm thankful to God for that. But I have, I have three kids. I have two sons. You know, one of the things I've noticed with my sons is that, and this is probably in part last night, the element of control, but I am, I'm always in like correction mode with them. Okay? Always in correction mode. In fact, last night, right before I went to bed, she says, I had a great conversation with one of our sons, and, and my, my, my text said, that's great. Did you ask him about this? Did he do this? And did he do this? And did you ask him about that? She's just delighted to have a nice conversation with her son. I want to make sure, is he doing the stuff he's supposed to do? What was, what was I doing? in trying to be a, 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 a leader, I had a grumbling spirit that simply wanted to make sure I corrected them. Okay. So it can become our way. It can become, now it doesn't mean that that's all we ever do, but it could be that certain areas, certain avenues of life, it is just really easy to just slip into that mode of a critical spirit and complaining and grumbling speech. And here's, here's the thing that we need to understand is that like so many other sins of the tongue, grumbling and complaining may seem relatively insignificant to us. Maybe we chalk it up to um, our ethnicity. 
You know, we do stuff like that, right? Okay. So, you know, well, of course he's a negative person. He's Dutch. <laughs> okay. Of, of course he's cranky. He's German. Or, of course, she's gregarious. She's Italian, all right? I mean, we have this idea that, that we make excuses for the, for the way that we are. And the fact is, is that in making those excuses, we never end up dealing with the sins of the tongue. And yet it is James that tells us that if you controlled your tongue, you'd be a perfect person, and so the sins of the tongue are, are, are incredibly egregious because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the biblical perspective on grumbling and complaining is far from being insignificant. So the first night we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I would just ask you to turn there and just revisit this. It's gonna, If you were here, this is going to be just sort of a repetition, but here it is, right in the middle of all of the icky sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The apostle says, starting in verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord or test the Lord as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened uh, to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. And so I just point out what I pointed out Thursday night, and that is grumbling or murmuring or complaining is right in the midst of idolatry and immorality. We'll turn over to the book of Jude. Jude in verse 14. Jude says, It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the, no, notice this, all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And so I would just point out that grumbling, as you see right there in verse 16, these are grumblers, they're fault finders. Who are they? They are the ungodly ones who are guilty of ungodly deeds, which they do in ungodly ways. In other words, the biblical perspective on grumbling and complaining is not just something that we accidentally slip into once in a while. It is actually associated with being an ungodly person. We saw on the screen the call to worship, James chapter 5. I would remind you to read this in the context of James chapter 3 and the, and the tongue. James 5, 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And so here's James, and he's, he's speaking to the church, and he says, don't 
don't grumble, don't complain against one another. Why? You don't want to bring the judgment of God. And the judge is standing right at the door. In other words, grumbling and complaining or a critical spirit is worthy of the judgment of God. And there is an implicit threat in James chapter 5 and verse 9. Grumbling is also a contagious sin. It's not just a manifestation of ungodliness. It, it, it's not just uh, mixed in with the, with the so-called ugly sins. It, 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 it beckons the judgment of God, but it is also contagious. So we, you're familiar with the story, Numbers chapter 13, Moses actually sends 12 spies into the land to do what? To actually uh, scout out the land and, and, and see the lay of the land, see the inhabitants come back to give a report. And so here's, here's the interesting thing, is that when they get there, guess what? The promised land is exactly as God said it would be. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a land that was abundant in produce. And they come back. And do you remember what happens? Ten of the twelve say, yeah, it's just like God said it was, except the Anakim are there. They're giants. They make us look like grasshoppers. And so we can't take this land. Do you know what happens? The entire assembly of Israel ends up being infected by the evil report of the 10. So much so that they get to the point where they are ready to stone Moses and Joshua and Caleb. The grumbling, the murmuring, the complaining spread like a cancer among the people of God. And I want to remind us that there is a sense in which the, those words that come out of our mouth, those complaining words, those critical words, those murmurings and those grumblings, those have a way of spreading even in our own families like gangrene. So if, if, if I've got the tendency to be a grumbler, and yet my wife doesn't, but if she starts grumbling, guess what's then really easy for me to start doing? Just to jump in and go, yeah, I can't believe it. It's awful. Can you believe those people? Yeah, it's terrible. And so there is a contagion. What are we teaching our kids? A critical grumbling spirit will actually infect your children. Children are going to be listening to mom and dad. And so I'll just, so Robert Godfrey, who used to be the president of Westminster Seminary in California, I heard him say one time, they were asking that a panel, and they were asking, why do you think that we're losing um, our young people when they grow up and, and go off to college? Why are we losing them from the church, right? Of course, this is a big question. Why, why is it that our kids are growing up and then they're walking away from the faith? And of course, all the different panelists had different answers regarding postmodernism and this and that and the other. And Robert Godfrey said, I attribute a lot of it to what happens to the table after service as the father and mother sit there and talk about church. If they sit there and have no respect for the pastor, if they sit there and criticize everybody who does something different than them, if they sit there and grumble and complain about the music or the color of the carpet or whatever it is, what are they doing? You're instilling something, just like the children of Israel listening to the 10 spies. You are instilling something where they're going to start, as they get older, they're going to start drawing conclusions like this. Well, if mom and dad didn't respect the preacher, why should I? If mom and dad sat there and talked in such a way that it sounded like they despised the church, 
Why should I keep going? And so there is a contagion to murmuring and complaining. And not only does it happen in families, but it also happens in churches. And so a few years ago, I was, I was asked to be involved in a, in a church crisis in a, in a different state. And we, and we get there, and, and what we found was that there were a, a couple of guys who were, who were, in a sense, sort of the, the, uh, the spring of this, and, and a pastor who'd been faithful to his congregation for many, many years. All of a sudden, as these two began to instigate and to say, well, this guy's really a bully, this guy's really this, this guy's really that, what ended up happening is that, is that then everybody started to have a complaint. Well, you know what he said to me back in 1984? And the idea of having a complaining spirit began to grow and began to grow and, to be and began to grow so that pretty soon, almost everybody had a complaint. Whether it was real or perceived, and even if the pastor had asked for forgiveness. Grumbling spreads like gangrene. Now, you know what's interesting about the text that, that Pastor Marty read for us from Philippians 2 is you can very easily draw the conclusion that the absence of grumbling or murmuring or complaining or disputing is actually a sign of holiness. It's actually a sign of being, being a shining lights in a crooked and perverse generation. And so at the end of the day, we have to understand something. Being a grumbler, being a complainer, being a person who just vents, what that is doing is it is actually reflecting my heart. That's the scary thing is that it's a reflection of my heart. It's revealing the condition of my heart. And so what may be coming out as I vent may be simply nothing other than selfish pride or ingratitude or discontentment or, or practical unbelief or being judgmental. Sinclair Ferguson makes this observation. He says, a complaining or arguing spirit is an expression of ingratitude to God's providence and of lovelessness and pride toward others. It is a denial of grace. It's working against salvation rather than working salvation out in every aspect of our lives. We, therefore, turn away from a spirit of complaint and dissatisfaction because it is so out of keeping with the spirit of his family. Grumbling or complaining speech corrupts the community of faith. Complaining critical speech, first of all, is not, but by, by, by talking like this, you have to understand, we are not making a blanket rejection of all, let's say, negative speech. Okay. Why? Well, because there are times where, let's say, the prophets, the prophets spoke in a way that, that could be negative. Okay. or at least perceived to be negative, our Lord Jesus, in the same way, when he's calling out sin, when he's calling out the Pharisees, you could say, well, that, was, that sounds really negative. I'd remind you that, that faithful are what? The wounds of a friend. So we're not, by, by saying this, we're not saying that, um, 
that you just never say anything that's confrontational. You never say anything that is um, that is direct and and perceived to be negative. But we are saying this is that is that there's a difference between godly criticism that comes in the form of a of a of loving correction or a loving rebuke. That that actually is a Christian duty, right? We actually have to do that. Um, if you like to do that, there's something wrong with you. Okay? We had a lady in our church. She's in heaven now. It, and she was a, she was a character. And, but there were times where she was just, she was just mean in her speech to other people. And so Ariel moved her in with her mom their roommates. Ariel's mom had had a stroke. She couldn't communicate. And, and I'll just tell you, you're her name because she's perfected now and in glory. Her name was Betty. And Betty would say things that were just, that were just mean-spirited. And so Ariel is there one night and she starts complaining about the caregiver. And then she starts complaining about Ariel's mom. And, and Ariel says to her, she says, Betty, you have to stop being so critical. And this was her, this was her answer. Well, dear, I'm from Texas and I just tell it like it is. Actually, when we got her death certificate, we found out she was born in Arkansas, but anyway, <laughs> Ariel said, Betty, I don't care what they do in Texas. You are a Christian woman. And you should not talk like that. Okay. So, loving rebuke, speaking the truth in love, Absolutely. And so godly criticism in the form of correction or rebuke may be completely appropriate. But, but here's, here's my warning for all of us. We have to be sure that we don't too quickly baptize all of our criticism as godly speech. You know, I mean, this is, this is one of the things that we, that we easily do. We, we tell it like it is, right? And we just let, I'm the kind of person, I just let the chips fall where they may. And I brutalize people with my words. Well, I don't brutalize them. I, I, I truth them in love, leave them, leaving them wounded and bleeding and crying. But it was in love. I'm just being faithful. Okay? We have to be careful that we don't go baptizing our critical speech as if it is actually godly speech, when in reality, it probably is not. It's like, we'll see tomorrow. I'll tip my hand. We're going to look at anger. Yay. And so as we look at anger, we're going to say, yes, there's such a thing as righteous anger. But then I'm going to turn around and tell you tomorrow. So mark my words tonight that as you, as you think about righteous anger, I want to say that it's something that we're not overly familiar with. Discerning right from wrong, speaking the truth in love, yes. But before we justify our grumbling, whether it's against our spouse or against our boss or against our church, let us remember that first of all, complaining, critical speech, just like gossip, implants ideas into people's heads which has rad which have radical implications. You do know that once, once those words come out, you have implanted an idea in somebody's head, often against another person. And you cannot take it back. Should you repent? Yes. But you cannot take it back. You're, you're breaking open the proverbial egg. You can't put the white and the yolk back in. 
and seal it all back up. It's out. And so we have to understand that that the words that come out of our mouths, is it any wonder that the psalmist has put a guard over my mouth? Right? And so we have to understand that it, it, it actually implants ideas and promotes the same heart disease that we may be suffering from. Such speech often is the fruit of discontentment. It is often the fruit of impatience. It's often the fruit of unbelief. And it's almost always the fruit of pride. And so when you think about the circumstances and the situations in which we are most prone to complain and murmur, it is often in those, in those times where, where things are not going our way, the stuff that we want to happen is not happening, we're looking at obstacles to my happiness or, or to my life or to my marital happiness or work or church or family, and I want all of that stuff in my life to be to be problem-free. I want to live in a trouble-free bubble. And anything that threatens that trouble-free bubble, I go to war with, with my words. The reality is that we easily are offended, we easily are insulted, we easily suffer from discontentment. Sometimes it is directly um, targeted against God, sometimes indirectly. But at the very heart, of a complaining spirit is a heart of unbelief. Why would, you, why would you say unbelief? Can't you say something different? Well, I think, I think the reason why complaining and murmuring reflects a heart of unbelief, first of all, you can see it in the wilderness generation, right? What was their problem? They didn't believe God. They didn't believe God. They grumbled and complained, didn't believe God. When we grumble and complain, oftentimes there is a, there is a, a, a fundamental assumption that we, we never would say with our mouths, but we may think in our minds or in the recesses of our hearts that we simply deserve better. How dare they say this? How dare they treat me like that? Why won't they listen to me? And so sometimes we murmur and complain because somehow we think we have been wronged. And the minute that I start living and acting as if I simply deserve better from everybody and in every circumstance, I am actually guilty of unbelief. In, in Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah says, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? The very thing I'm grumbling about, the very thing I'm complaining about, oftentimes is simply because somehow I feel slighted. I feel wrong. I feel like I should have been treated better. I should have received better treatment from this person or that person. And so here we are and we are looking and, and, and it is as if we're simply holding our fist up to God. We wouldn't do it, but it's as if we're holding our fist up to God. Say, how dare you let this happen? to me. In 1990, I read Arthur W. Pink, The Sovereignty of God, and uh, it changed uh, my life. It was, it was a convergence of things that were happening that 
God was bringing me to a bigger picture of himself, more beautiful and glorious and powerful and sovereign and so forth. I'm reading Arthur W. Pink, and Pink says, do you know that when you complain about the weather, you're grumbling against the sovereignty of God? (laughs) Who sent those clouds? God. Or for you guys, who sent that hurricane? (laughs) Well, maybe that's not a bad example. We drove past a bunch of buildings that were all smashed to pieces from the last one. But guess what? God is still sovereign over that. Grumbling and complaining often has at its root an unbelieving heart. Now, ask yourself, how in the world how in the world can I overcome that? Okay. I think that, that if, we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we find that there's, there's at least a little bit of this in us. But I think like if we're really honest with ourselves, there's more than we'd want to admit. Right? What in the world do you do about it? I want to say the way that you combat complaining speech, critical speech, murmuring, is first of all, you find your contentment in nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Your contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely crucial in overcoming a critical complaining spirit. Why? Because content people are not complainers. Can you, can you just say that in your own head? Content people are not complainers. And so if Content people are not complainers. I mean, have you ever met anybody that was just content with their station in life and content with the sovereignty of God and content with their uh, with, with the salvation that they have in Jesus Christ? And they're just content. They're just resting in the Lord. They're generally not complainers, are they? There's also a sense where you need to put off and then put on. And so if you put off grumbling or complaining, you have to conscientiously put something else in its place. By the way, that's the pattern Paul gives us in Romans or Ephesians chapter 4, isn't it? Put off, put off the old man, and then he gives us a list of things that we're supposed to put off. And then we are to put on the new man, which is Christ, old man Adam, new man Christ. And then we're supposed to put on things in the place of what we've put off. So what do you, what do you actually have to put on in the place of grumbling or murmuring? And I would say it's, it's actually quite simple. You have to try by God's grace to be an, an intentional encourager. In other words, if you're going to put off grumbling you have to then put on something, and that something is encouraging speech. I think that if we practiced encouragement, some of our closest friends and family members may suffer a severe paroxysm. What happened? <laughs> okay. But, ju- I mean, just for fun, surprise them. Encourage them. Say something, say something encouraging. Why? Because, because encouraging people are not critical people. Right? So, so you get it, right? Content people are not complainers. Encouraging people are not critical. And keep in mind, keep in mind that the spirit of Christ Jesus is contrary 
to a spirit of criticism. Look over. This this will be our last text. We'll end we'll end early. I hope. Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, let me just point out just a couple of things about this verse. Paul is first of all appealing to your identity as the children of God. In other words, life in God's family, being a member of God's family, means that we live in a different way, right? This is, that's not hard. Life in God's family means that I live as a different, in a different way. Why? Because God is my father. The Lord Jesus is my savior. The spirit of God dwells in me. I'm united to those around me by Christ and through his spirit. And so I'm in a new family. And so I do stuff a new way. And the new way is, is, is this understand you're chosen of God. Okay. By the way, when God chose you, did he wait for you to give him permission? The answer is no. Okay. God freely chose you. Okay. According to his purpose and grace. All right. So as those chosen of God, so automatically that puts me in a posture of realizing that God's been kinder to me than, than, than I deserve just by virtue of the fact that he's chosen me. Where, where do I actually belong? I belong in hell. That's what I deserve. He's chosen me. Should I not live differently? But, but Paul doesn't just say chosen of God. He then says holy. So you're separated. You, you are set apart for, for God and for his purposes. And then you are beloved. That is the, the, the father doesn't just make some cold clinical decree by which he chooses you. He actually sets his love upon you. Election is never a matter of just God saying, um, I choose you, I dump you, I choose you, I dump you. There is a sense in which the eternal divine love of God in Jesus Christ is set upon those whom God chooses and so beloved. And again, to think, the God of heaven loves me. The God of heaven has set his love and affection upon me when from all eternity before I ever did anything. That's who I am. That's who you are. I don't care if you're from Texas or not. That's who you are. And so Paul says, in light of who you are, Put on, just like a garment, put on, first of all, a heart of compassion. Oh, my goodness. Um, my wife, I keep talking about my wife, and some of you are going to think, wow, she's like better than Mother Teresa. Well, that is true. Okay, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> just, just a compassionate person. I've learned so much about just being compassionate from from watching my wife just show compassion. Compassion is the chief affection that Jesus shows in the Gospels. 
So as chosen of God, as beloved of God, as the holy ones of God, do what? Put on a heart of compassion. That is, in a sense, put on Christ. Put on kindness. Oh, my goodness. Kindness is underrated by Christians. Being kind is actually a, a marvelous demonstration of the grace of God. Put on humility. By the way, if you grasp chosen of God, holy and beloved, there is, there's nothing else you can do. If you let the full weight and gravitas of that actually impact your heart, you're going to put on humility. I don't deserve any of this. And then put on gentleness and patience. By the way, do you know who has, who has a heart of compassion, who's kind, humble, gentle, and patient? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13, bearing with one another. What do your translations say? Bearing with one another? I was hoping for something a little more, uh, you know, something more. <laughs> um, you, you could legitimately translate this putting up with one another. Okay? By the way, that actually seems a little more vivid to me than just bearing with one another, right? So if I, I'm bearing with, you know, okay, well, that's, that's pretty, that's, that's, that's good, but putting up with. So there, there are going to be people who, who do what? Who, who rub me the wrong way. There are going to be people, even in church, that you're like, ah, hope they don't sit by me. Paul says, you put on compassion and humility and gentleness and patience. And then you bear with one another. You endure with one another. Right? Enduring, bearing, putting up with one another and forgiving each other. You know, it's really hard to continue to be a grumbler and a complainer when you're a forgiver. I love this next part. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Now, don't tell me that yours says that as well. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Whoever has a complaint against anyone, forgive, right? This is the idea, forgiving each other. So you're enduring with each other. You're forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Isn't it interesting that notice it doesn't say complain about those you have a complaint with. It says forgive them. It says forgive them. You do realize there's only two avenues when it comes to having a complaint against somebody. Now, the assumption is, is what? That that person has probably sinned against me, right? This isn't, this isn't just, you know, oh, well, they drive a Ford. I, I'm a Chevy guy. I've got a complaint, okay? This is, this is something probably more substantial than that. The complaint probably could be an offense. And the remedy is simply one of two things. Either love covers a multitude of sins or you go to that brother and speak to him about his sin, Matthew 18. Those are the two. Those, those are the only two options. You realize that? It's not phone 10 friends, get their opinion, and then figure out what to do. Right? It's not start to grumble and complain and then figure out what to do. It is either love covers a multitude of sins. So I have to ask myself, is this complaint of such a nature that I can cover it in love? If it is, I should cover it in love. If it's something that, that may be detrimental to them 
or it's something that 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 I'm finding very difficult to cover in love, then it may be if your brother sins, go to him in private. Okay? It's not complain against those with whom you have a complaint. And then Paul says, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I want to say that that should probably be the end of the story for all of us. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You do understand that in the overall scope of things, any sin that another brother or sister commits against you is, is, is maybe a $100 offense. Maybe it's a $1,000 offense. But you understand that you and I sin against God more in one hour than any human being could sin against us in a lifetime. And so if God has forgiven us, then we ought to be forgiving people. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And so here it is. We keep in mind the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We actually, in a sense, we, we submit to the sovereignty of God. We put on humility, knowing that I actually don't deserve better in light of my own sins. And then I try to be a content person because a content person is not a complainer. And I try to be an encouraging person because encouraging people are typically not critical. And then what do I do? I start to realize, you know what? Being a murmurer, grumbler, complainer, that's not who I am as the elect of God. That's not who I am as holy. That's not who I am as beloved of God. I'm actually supposed to be putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, exhibiting gentleness and kindness and patience. And I'm also to be putting up with brothers and sisters. And let me tell you, there are times where we got to put up with each other. But you know what we do? We get offended. We grumble, we complain, we pick up our marbles and go home. That's not what we do as the people of God. We endure with each other and we forgive. And so if you're here and you're thinking, you know what? Yeah, I've got strong tendencies to grumble and complain. Confess the heart attitude, okay? Confess the heart attitude. But, but also confess the words that are spoken. And then seek the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's probably the hardest part. If you know that you've got the tendency to be a grumbler, You take some people that are close to you and you say to them, look, God has exposed this sin in my heart. And what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you that if I start to grumble or complain in your presence, you will, for the sake of of love to my soul will say, you're starting to grumble, brother, sister. You need to stop. Ask the people close in your life. Stop me. You hear me? Stop me. And then pray. Pray for the grace of the Lord Jesus. Do you know that God is absolutely committed to conforming you to the image of his son? And do you know that our Lord Jesus was not a murmurer or a complainer? God's intention for us as his beloved, as is for our good. And so let's make sure that we're not like that evil, unbelieving generation that spoke evil words of, un, of unbelief filled with murmuring and complaining. Let's make sure that we're people that are content. Let's make sure that we're people who are encouragers, right? Just try it. Husbands, go home. As you're driving home, 
just like say a word of encouragement to your wife and see what happens. Now, if she's driving, she may end up driving off of the road out of sheer shock. Does Jesus give us grace to do these things? Yes, he does. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we confess to you how, how quickly we complain and use critical speech and, and act as if you are of no consequence in our lives. We pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would peel away all of the layers that we use to protect our grumbling and complaining speech, and you would help us to see it for what it is. Help us to joyfully embrace your sovereignty, to joyfully be humble before you, knowing that everything you've done for us, you've done freely in Christ Jesus. And help us, Father, to be those who encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. We commit ourselves to you as, as your elect, your chosen ones. We commit ourselves to you as holy and beloved. Instill in us the desire to be what we are in Christ Jesus. We ask this in our Lord's precious name. Amen.